This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, it's Robbie here and coming up on this episode of the Offscript Extra Time podcast, we're in conversation with a golfing legend. The Offscript podcast. Let's get on to our exclusive interview, if we can, with one of the greatest golfers who ever lived, Sir Nick Faldo. We caught up with Nick at the Romanza inaugural. That was the event that took place in Multan, Pakistan, where his Faldo-designed Romanza Golf and Country Club became the country's first ever championship standard golf course when it was inaugurated last weekend. At this point, a big shout-out to our very good friend who we played golf with yes. this morning, Greg Sproul and Peregrine, for putting on what is tantamount to an historic event, certainly for golf. And it's an historic moment for golf in Pakistan because it was the first time ever in the country's history that international caliber players had played on a championship layout in the country of Pakistan. Pakistan, a country of over 200 million people, a country which has potentially got a lot of untapped golfing possibilities uh, when it comes to tournament players and actually had a chance to, to meet some of them. So Graham McDowell was there, Rafa Carrera Bayo, Charlie Hull, and some of the top pros that play on the Pakistan circuit and actually on the MENA tour as well. Ahmed Beg, who's a 23-year-old, super talented young player, Hamza Amin as well, and the ladies' national ch- amateur champion, Humna Amjad, what all playing in the challenge match which took place on the Sunday but this is all going to focus in on Sir Nick Faldo a man who won six majors the second most ever by a European after Harry Varden and there's a beautiful symmetry to his major hall because he won three open championships and three, three masters. masters the best the best two the best two yeah. and he won three each of, of both of those he came runner up in both the other majors incidentally he finished second in the 1988 US Open and he finished second in the PGA Championship in 1992 so I mean he's had an incredible career and you know what as well Rob I think I've said it to you before he doesn't get I don't believe the credit that his CV warrants and it may be down to the man I know there's been a lot said I mean you've spent a bit of time with him I mean did Sir Nick Faldo live up to the reputation I think in his in his heyday there was perhaps a, a kind of aloofness perhaps about yeah. him is maybe that the, 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 he was so absorbed and so introverted in, in what he was doing and um, he didn't come across perhaps as the most personable guy in his in, in his career in his playing career but he's since and subsequently become an extremely respected broadcaster, broadcaster. Yeah. he's now the chief analyst uh, the lead analyst on golf channel for cbs and he takes care of with jim nance you know some of the major golfing tournaments the masters their their coverage their their um uh, their coverage of, of tiger's win in nine, in 2019 stands out as among the very very best in golf broadcasting i mean they were absolutely they lifted the whole occasion and and they made what sir nick describes the greatest moment in golfing history they elevated it even more in the in the way that they called that sensational moment when Tiger won the 2019 Masters. But he's won 43 tournaments around the world. He spent 97 weeks at world number one. And I found out only four golfers have spent longer at world number one since the ranking system was launched back in 1986. So this is this will post-date the likes of Nicholas and Watson. But it's Tiger himself, it's Greg Norman, it's Dustin Johnson, and it's Rory McElroy wow. are the four golfers that have spent longer at world number one. As for his design portfolio, Faldo Design. They've got more than 50 projects in over 20 countries, Pakistan becoming the latest of those. And his junior series, the Faldo Junior Series, Faldo Series sees 7,000 participants playing 38 tournaments across 28 countries. And Rory McIlroy is a graduate of the programme. As is Nick Doherty. 
who's yes, now, of course, with Sky Sports. So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of kids have come through and a lot of young players have actually made their way in the game through that Fowlow Junior Series. His mental toughness, Chris, I wanted to get into that when, when talking to Sir Nick over the course of our, our time together in Pakistan. His mental toughness was legendary. He thrived in major championships and that's where the conversation starts. What was it about his character and his mental approach that allowed him to play his best golf in the biggest, most difficult tournaments? We call it bottle in Britain, don't we? You, you, you know, it's nerve. I was able to play, and even though you're nervous and and you're throwing yourself in the deep end, you you're thriving. You're you're playing better, and you're able to handle it. So that was, you know, whether that simply came from building that up. You know, I'm a I'm a self. All of that mind games, whatever. I'm, I'm self-taught, starting with targeting. At Little Wellingarn City, you know, my practice ground was one green, one bunker, one green, and one flag. Not, nothing fancy, but but it taught me targeting. I was hitting goal shots at a target with an intention. I learnt how to practice with intention for each shot by by no choice because I only I had one shot in front of me. So I I learnt that trick as well. Then I learnt visualization. I taught myself visualization where. I'm playing Wellington City every day. Some of those holes were boring. It's politely like that. So I had to pretend, well, okay, there's a pond here, so I can, cannot miss this green left because there's a imaginary pond. And, and I'd play holes backwards. Like I'd hit the, I'd hit the seven iron off the tee and then try and hit the three wood to the green. I was doing anything to, you know, backwards in that sense. The clubs were the wrong way around. So anything to kind of keep me entertained. So all those things were self-taught, but I guess... I, I've somehow made myself comfortable in those situations and I enjoyed it. I mean, I, once I realized, when you, and it's belief, self-belief, self-trust. Trust is a huge, huge word, isn't it? How to know what you can do. And, you know, and I love, I love pushing myself. You know, there was an opportunity and it's comfort zones, all those sort of things. I mean, you can tell it's lots of little things. It's mm. not just, can't just say, oh, I believed it. Sure, you believe in yourself. But I think you put all those things together. And then I was comfortable being in those positions. I wanted to win a major. But then I believed I could win a major from, I could, believed I could win the Open after 1978 at St. Andrews. You know, I finished four shots back then. I walked away from there and said, yeah, I can do this. One day I can win an Open. It took me nine more years. You know, and the swing changed. You know, to finally get there. So that was huge relief at 30 years old. I served my apprenticeship on tour. You know, I came on tour just before I was 19, and then I win my first major at 30. So mm. old school. You know, you served your apprenticeship. So hey, it was building all of that up to to really loving being in the deep end. You know, and going out. That was my biggest goal, and I I think that's the only way you can rate a golfer. I think a great line, I think it's from Bobby Jones, who said there's two, two types of golfers, one's one who can play under pressure and one who can't. And I wanted to be the guy who could love playing under pressure on a Sunday afternoon and, and, and it made you play better. We're going to go back. We're going to revisit some of the great moments in Nick's career. Chief among them, his playoff victory over Scott Hoke in the 1989 Masters. Are you familiar with this, Chris, the I narrative? Am not. I am not. 
shooting a 65 on the final day. He came from five shots back and he started the day in a tie for ninth at the start of the final round. After 72 holes, he and Hoke could not be separated. The first sudden death playoff hole was the downhill 10th at Augusta. And here, so Nick picks up the story. You know, I finished about 45 minutes and I went to the Bobby Jones cabin and just sat there because that's what you kind of did in the old day. And then you come out a bit cold and I skied my tee shot at 10 and it left it right on the top of the side of the slope. And I actually hit one heck of a forehand. It was only like 10 feet offline, but because coming from the angle I'm coming, it goes in the bunker and people, you know, you think, oh, offline, but not by much. <laughs> and then I hit a poor bunker shot. And then all those weird things happened. If Scott Hoke had putted up and said, I'll finish, he could have tapped it in from you know, two feet from behind the hole, and I've now got a 20-footer to tie. It could all have been very different, but no. You know, I make a five. And then weirdly, I went and stood on the side of the green, and I said, well, I said, I can still win this. I said, but it doesn't look very good right now. Straight and firm, Scott, right in the heart. He's missed it, and he's knocked it. He's knocked it three and a half feet past the hole. I don't believe it. Holy I do not hell. believe it. And he misses it. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And off we went to 11. And it was gray drizzle and nearly dark. And I blocked my tee shot right. And, and I hit a three iron from there. I remember it, yeah. Yeah. And I, and, all I, and I went for it. I went for a little tiny draw. I sent it down the right. Wait a minute. Take a look at this one, Steve. That's better than good, Kenny. I'm going to tell you what, that is some gutsy play. He just took it right at it and didn't even fool with it. I couldn't see anything. It was just like you're just aiming. Well, now I think that's right edge, and I saw it turn a little bit left, and I nailed it, obviously. And I honestly didn't see the ball until it was like 60 yards from the green. I finally could see it, and it's so dark. I'm now, I panic. I'm like, How am I, who's, who's going to tell the official I'm not, I'm not going on? 12 was black, it was dark. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that spurred me on. Andy Proj, my good old caddy from Watford, he comes, I said, so Proj, what do you think? And he goes, all, all looks a bit of a blur to me, Gov. <laughs> <laughs> so I go, all right, you go and hold the flag then. <laughs> you get up that end. And I stood over that putt, and I'm, and I'm gripping it too tight. And I said, God, just let go, let go. And my swing, my putting thoughts were really technical. <laughs> left, back, right. I guess I was going left, right. Left hand, back, right hand through. Seriously, I just said, all right, left, right. And I literally went left, right. This thing came off as sweet as sweetest long part I've ever hit in my life. And boom, and it's gone, it's in. And that's it. All he wants to do is get it close. Falls in, it's a plus, as we say, but... There it is! Can you believe it? Nick Can Baldo! You? That ball was moving at a pretty good rate, too, Steve. He was given a reprieve at the 10th. Took advantage of it here at 11. Nick Faldo, the 1989 Masters champion. Is that, that the most exhilarating feeling you've, you've yeah, had on a golf course? Unbelievable. Yeah, that was, that was like you've... Yeah, I can still see it and almost feel it now, but that thing just went jump, and there you are. And, and I said, oh, my God, I've won. That's it, you know. And so that started the whole new, I guess, the whole new goal of trying to win more. 
Oh, that was an incredible moment Speaks there. Well. Really yeah, good. it does, yeah. In the gloom of 1989 and the, the old school Augusta commentary as well. The Masters commentary teams from the 1980s were great as well. But perhaps the most famous major win is the 1996 duel against the White Shark, Greg Norman. And Faldo, he'd started the day six back. Everyone would assu- was assu- had assumed that Norman would win. And Norman indeed suffered an infamous collapse. He shot 78 to Nick's 67. And I I asked Sir Nick, was there a moment during this incredible swing when he thought to himself, I've got this? Well, probably never, I've got this. No, things were different. I watched Greg re- on the second tee, Greg started re gripping it. He took like a dozen re grips, and I just went, Oh, that's different. That's all I said to myself. He still made a good four. And then for me, the sixth hole, I bogeyed. I bogeyed five, but we were hitting two iron into fifth in, in the, back in the day. So for me, I then hit six iron to six feet behind, and that was really big boost because that tee shot down the hill is like a barometer for your, where you are. If you, if you can control that golf ball from 190 yards down that hill onto a dinner table, that was huge. That was like, okay, I'm all right. That's good. And then, you know, and obviously he fritters and mistakes away, and then we get to, by the time we get to the 12th, we're now tied. Amazing. Good looking shot. It's heading at the flag. Is it the right number? Wow. Two days in a row. There's the ball submerged in Race Creek. Be playable. Three bogeys in a row, and then this. So that was really nervy. It was like, wow. And then, <laughs> then I'm two ahead, and then we had the whole drama of thirteen. Are you at that point fighting to distract because you're you're at, you're at risk of big becoming distracted by his own kind of misfortune? Yeah, that, that was yeah. But people go. But I've still got to do it. I can. I could still fold at any time. So I'm still standing there going, "Okay, I've got to." I had to mentally push myself. That was my best mental round probably in my life because I wasn't. I didn't have the same confidence as 1990. You know, 1990, I, my irons were amazing. I believed I can do anything. And so 90s by 96, I had to push myself through. Okay, Nick. All right, here we go. What we got? It was a bit like that. You know, Fanny's there, and I got 185. Okay, I'm going to hit it there. I'm going to hit it. How do I hit that? How do, how do, how do I? You know, what I'm working on all the time, and keep doing it. And and even I can promise you, even now I'm going. Oh, blow it! The wheel's going to come off. No, they're not. Come on, the wheel's not coming off. You're going to. You can see. And I'm doing honest. I'm doing all of that to myself, and kept doing it. Talk about you know, cliche. One shot at a time. It really was. I can. You know, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it, and do it. It was back to I still had the, the trust that I could pull the trigger and do it. And so that's how that round piece together. So I didn't count my chickens till I looked at that leaderboard on 18, I can promise you. I came up 17, a four shot, and I just praying. We both had birdie putts, and I just was going, I just want four shots. Just, I just want four shot lead coming up the last. I know I can handle that. And once you've got on the green, you look at the leaderboard and double check all the numbers. You know, they haven't screwed up. Somebody, and then you go, and that's finally when I said, I've done it. Nick Faldo. Well, he thought he had to shoot 67 today. He'd get it right here. He had a number. Greg did not have a number. He got it. Nick Faldo has won the Masters for the third time. 
You think it was meant to be with that touch, yeah, Jimmy? Amazing. And it's interesting, you, you said in 1990, the St. Andrews win was, was kind of the, the piece de resistance yeah. almost because your game was, was absolutely in its pomp. And was it sweeter to win in 96 when you were battling that? Well, in a way, yeah, because, well, no, yes and no. Yeah, because 1990, you went there on a mission. 1990 was a special year because I went to Augusta and I managed to get myself in the right mental state of... I was winding myself up about, oh, you're going to defend, you're going to defend. And I thought, oh, forget defending, go and win another one. Just start again fresh. Go and win one. So I managed to get rid of all the, you know, I'm trying to defend. So that was a trick. And then I went, you know, and I hit the hole at the U.S. Open to tie. And, and I went to St. Andrews on an absolute flat-out mission. I was just, it was a mission. I'm going to go and win at St. Andrews. Crazily, I knew I'd win by five. That's and crazy. I said, yeah, and I said, and she said well, if you're going to win by five, guess what? You've got to be leading by five. So I kept pushing myself. You know, even if I'm leading by one or two, it's like, no, I said I'm going to be leading by five. I'm winning by five. So I've got to be leading it by five, haven't I? And that's how I kept pushing myself. Nick Faldo is the champion golfer. He's won the British Open for the second time. A round of 71. 18 under par for the championship. 67, 65, 67, and 71. <laughs> Winning the Masters and the Open at St Andrews in 1990. Not a bad year for Sir Nick Faldo and what a performance there against Norman back in 1996. Remember it as if it was yesterday. He was renowned as a, as a precision player, but he was never a power player, was Sir Nick Faldo. And as technology began to make a big impact on the game, the arrival of Tiger Woods on tour and his subsequent blowout victory at Augusta the year after Sir Nick beat Greg Norman in that playoff Tiger in 97 would win the Masters by 12 strokes and it felt like a sort of passing of the torch not necessarily from Faldo to Woods but that generation to Tiger's era certainly from the Normans and the Faldos Tiger took over in 1997 and and the equipment was allowing players to hit the ball much harder and Faldo eventually realised that he was no longer able to compete at the highest level I tell you how my career ended (laughs) I stood on the hill at number nine Augusta which year was this? well my son's on the bag it must have been 204 or something like that I'm on top of the hill I've got a three iron in my hand and I said how do I hit this green man? I've got bunkers left the size of houses. I come up short. We know it famously rolls back. The green is angled like that. I'm on a, you know, it's, I cannot hit this green. I, I am not. I do not have the skill anymore to get this ball onto the green from standing on top of the hill with a three iron in my hand. And that was really kind of it. That's why I said, okay, I'm kind of. I missed out in that. So I remember when Tiger won in '97. I remember clearly. I had the videotape. He was hitting wedge into Would 11. You, he was hitting wedge into nine 15. Nine into 15. That was you know, that nine was iron it. wedge. Nine iron into 15. Hit it so far down there, and it was like. And that's when they went for lengthening, which then he was the longest, so it played completely into his hands. It was like you're tiger-proofing. Right. They should have said, let's go for 6-8. <laughs> you know, they should have gone the other way to tiger-proof it, so everybody thought we'd go longer. Right. And which we've they're proofing st- it for one guy, but they're... Which, which we're still doing, which is, a, you know, we're still getting carried away with, um, you know, longer is better, which is not. I mean, if you can... You know, scary little fiddly little nine eyes when the guy knows if I pull it left, I get to take a five, you know, a par three, then 
that's the kind of hole you've got to develop. One, uh, one tournament recently that really stuck out because Rory McIlroy made a comment and he said, when I saw Bryson play winged foot in the US Open the way he yeah. did, I realized or I thought to myself, I need to explore that. Yeah. But then I looked up the driving stats and Rory's average driving distance was actually marginally longer than Bryson's that week. Because <laughs> he was hitting the fairway. Because he was hitting the fairway. But Bryson putted the lights out that week. Bryson. And you can't win a major if you don't put the lights out. Well, absolutely. So I'm, I'm said, well, there's no way you can win at wing foot from out the rough, right? And the huge mistake I then made, well, then I realized, oh, so he's in the rough at 200 yards out, 190, 200. So back in my day, you're looking at, the, how do I get a five iron onto the screen? So it's impossible to strike it in the US Open. But Bryson had the strength to get one with the clubs and everything, eight irons. So suddenly, you're 200 yards from the hole. Now, we would be thinking, well, get the little seven wood in there. But no, they grab this eight iron, give it a wallop, get it up front edge sort of thing. That's how he did it. And you think, wow, that is, well, that is the, the huge change in this game, that the short irons go ridiculous different. I still see it on TV. People have been weak, and they go, they go 193, and they go, yeah, he's got an eight iron. I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking that. We had five. So with a Bellata ball, Sir Nick, and old clubs, or at least clubs from the, let's say, the, the late 80s, early yeah, 90s. Yeah, good old blades. You know. Yeah, you're, you're hitting, you've got to hit the sweet spot, otherwise you're losing. Well, that was, that was, the, that was the difference. That's, that was, um, you know, we were real ball strikers. You were really rewarded, and it was, and it was very recognisable that guys were strikers, and, you, and people knew that. So I was obviously really good. And Nick Price, another one. Yeah, anybody could really strike at consistency was rewarded with that consistency over the week. It was because if you necked a few and towed a few, you lost 15, 20 yards, basically even with even with irons. Not you know, obviously not sure, but that was the skill of flighting and striking it and flighting it. Um, now, obviously, equipment is so darn good. There's no doubt. I mean, I've seen it in other sports as well, but there is no doubt that uh, the the finesse and the precision of the game has been depleted by the arrival of kind of technology where it's not just the materials, but it's also the size of the clubs and the ability to miss the middle and yet still get a decent result. Yeah. That's the big thing with these modern clubs. I mean, you tell me, Rob, you watch golf a lot closer than I do, but is the finesse out of it? Don't we still have touch and feel players around the game? There greens? are touch and feel players, but... There is much more of a kind of bomb and gouge approach now to to golf. Just hit it as far as you can, and then wherever you, if you're in the rough or not, you're just wedging on from kind of a hundred yards, and you do see less of the sort of the Faldo esque kind of because in that era. The best ball strikers separated themselves and they sort of won tournaments off the strength of their ball striking. Nowadays, putting is what wins tournaments. Mm. They don't often see ball striking win tournaments. Yeah, it's important. And certainly at places like the Masters, the Masters and the Majors, I think it still holds up. You still see the best ball strikers kind of come to the fore there. But um, yeah, I think there's there's no doubt that the game has moved on and it's changed. And and I don't think necessarily it's any worse, but I think his point was that, you know, the the, the sort of gaining an edge from being a consummate ball striker is no longer the advantage it used to be. I think that's essentially what he's saying there. But I wanted to finish our chat with Sir Nick with uh, insight into the Romanza Golf and Country Club and golf in Pakistan in general and and the design business and his Faldo series. He's got so many different kind of strands to his, his portfolio and his legacy now and which the Faldo series incidentally has given gifted 
Juniors, a, a big platform with over 7,000 youngsters taking part in it annually. And for Sir Nick, building a championship course in Pakistan, that must have been a huge source of pride. Obviously, from playing a lot of golf, I was visualisation was huge in my career. Big believer in, you know, all of that. So I, I feel I can look at mud, dirt and see golf holes and come out and we want and we want to create something different and I've got a great architect in Andy Haggard we've been working together again we guess we're getting closer to 20 years than anything else so and if you look left and right around here I think it's it's unique and obviously chatting with Andy um, this really is maybe a a one-off project not a one-off a once in a lifetime project you know everybody every architect wants a links a true links, we're going to do a true links, and everybody wants to do one on sand or in a forest or whatever. But to be able to build a golf course on pure sand and go completely opposite, where we went down rather than going up, I'm really excited. I hope, I can't wait for the international um, committee, whatever it is, to come and have a look at this and, and go, okay, this is different, this is good. And in Pakistan as well, that's an interesting yeah. aside because it's my first time here. I know you've been coming here since yeah. this project started, but we've got a country with an enormous population and a lot of keen golfers. We've seen a lot of them out here and, and they, they're like sponges. They really want to learn yeah. from the best. And, you know, given the infrastructure down the road, I think a, a champion from Pakistan would, would be an enormous leap forward for the country in golf. Well, they, yeah, to give them something, this really is, if you plonk this anywhere else in the world, they'd go, yeah, we get it. Um, but the fact we put it in the ground in, in Pakistan, and again, people, if you haven't done this before, go, okay, you built it in three years, so what? But in our business, to, to put this in the ground from start to finish, from walking and waving my arms around, as you know, to actually open it in three years, it's off the charts. That's really unique, really rare. So all credit to the team. I mean, they've done an incredible job to actually again, in a nation that's not really a golfing nation, to come on board and, and do it so well. They've got to be very proud of themselves. They've done a fantastic job here. I've got to ask you about the Faldo series because, you know, so many great names have kind of emerged from it. I read yeah. the stat that it's 7,000 golfers globally and you're in 28 countries now, which is extraordinary, really. Yeah. I mean, you must get so much satisfaction in terms of your legacy from not only the, the, the kind of blueprints you're putting out on these golf courses, but uh, offering a pathway to, to young yeah. players. Well, even more exciting, we're having a revamp. You know, we've done 25 years. We've come up with some whole new ideas, which I'm going to announce soon, that we've basically created more opportunities for our winners to play in tournaments. So I'm not going to... It's still top secret right now. Um, but bottom line, we have... You know, by playing the Feldo series, obviously winning your age groups, you will then be able to play in bigger and better global amateur events and pro events. So we, we're very excited that we've, we've, we're pushing things Getting great, we've always had great support from the RNA. Now we've got great support from uh, now the DP World Tour, good old European tour. Still <laughs> European tour. I started when it was the British tour. My goodness, when it was when it was when well, it, it went was to like, Dubai in '89. Well, yeah, I started exactly. I was there for the start of Dubai when it was just everywhere else was where there's camels outside the, the you know the uh, the square of green grass. Um, yeah, I started when there was, whatever, 16 or 18 tournaments in Britain. We drove up and down that M6 a million miles <laughs> in my Capri 1600 GT. 
Yeah, so obviously things everybody's expanded really well. It's a different world back then. 16 to 18 events just in Britain. That's how the European Tour, which is now the DP World Tour, first started and then it expanded its borders in 1989 it had already gone to Europe of course then it it moved outside of Europe and its first port of call was right here in Dubai amazing yeah but uh, no I mean what a legendary player and and he, he what a legendary career he had and of course a legacy that he's built with his course design and um, a big thank you to Sir Nick for sparing the time to chat to us on off script and also to Romanza Golf and Country Club and DHA Moltan and to Greg Sprawl and yes. his team at Peregrine for the hospitality I am honestly intrigued to see what the, the future holds for Pakistan Golf because they've got this massive population and they've got an awfully lot of keen players and when you have courses and facilities like the Romanza Golf and Country Club, you open yourself up to new possibilities. Yeah, I guess the first, the, the next step is getting a, a tour event, perhaps an Asian tour event. That's what they're targeting. Yeah, that, That's, that, that was the word. A lot sense. of people were talking about potentially doing that in the next couple of years, an Asian tour event, yeah. and then some kind of competitive infrastructure coming in with more coaching, more elite academies, and giving the, the young players that have got potential and have got talent a structure to sort of hone their games and, and take the next step to a, an international level. But we wish them the best of luck in that pursuit. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 